Start planning today and take that trip you've always wanted to. Every adventure gives you the opportunity to experience something new. Traveling will pay tenfold what you pay to actually do it. This is Inspire Beyond Borders, and we're here to help you see the world. Welcome back to Inspire Beyond Borders, everybody. We're here with Rebecca again, talking about her trip in France. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm doing splendidly. Thank you. And Jim, welcome back. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing great. Oh, you sounded so enthusiastic. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... You finally leave Paris. You're headed out to Danan. The road trip finally begins. Your mother-in-law goes home, so now it's just you and your husband. How did you end up making your way around France? We have rented a car because we like the freedom to just go where we want to go. We're very American that way. I'd say it's probably the most American feature of us as travelers. So as you're getting ready to finally get out of the big city, you end up stopping at Chartres, which is a lesser known cathedral to anyone who doesn't know a lot about France. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Sure. It's actually, I believe you can do it as a day trip out of Paris, if I I remember correctly, because I think on my very first trip to Paris more than a decade ago, we took a train, one of the trains from the center of Paris out to Chartres. But this time, um, my husband hadn't seen it, and I really wanted to share it with him because, of course, as many people know, Notre Dame has suffered massive fire damage, so we couldn't go into that church while we were there. So we wanted to see one of the other very beautiful, well-known cathedrals, and Chartres is one of them, and it's got an incredible rose window. So we did that. And how does it compare to the rose window at Notre Dame? I am not what one would call a stained glass expert. I mean, to (laughs) me, they kind of all look the same. I think that one of the things to remember when you're visiting these cathedrals, because, I mean, don't get me wrong, they are gorgeous. But when they were built, they were the only big building in sight. Like, people were living in in huts with grass roofs and stuff, you know? And then there were these cathedrals that just soared to the heavens, and then the light would pour in through the stained glass, and people didn't even have glass windows. Like... And then this was colored glass that was telling the story. So when we're looking at these rose windows and stuff, they're beautiful now, but they must have been just heart-stopping in the moment when they were built. You know, the impression of seeing it when there was nothing else in the world like it. That's what I try to remember when I look at them. Now, how busy was this site when you got there? Not really busy at all. As I mentioned in our, in our last episode, uh, we were off season. So now we're already into the second week of October, maybe the third week of October. And so the peak travel season was over. There was still plenty of activity. So it felt very lively, but there were no lines. There were no crowds. It was very comfortable. That's awesome because a lot of people, they only get out usually June, July, August, the big months of traveling. And then obviously prices are hiked up as well. So when you can go during these off seasons, you get that space you need to explore. You usually don't have to wait on too many lines. And obviously off season means lower price, which is usually very nice. Lower price and cooler weather. And I'm, you know, I live in Seattle. I am built for 
rainy gray skies. So I love that. I hate standing in line and being hot. It makes me cranky. So having cool weather to roam around these cities, yeah, you might need to bring some some rain gear with you, but I really prefer that aspect of going off season as well. That's a good point. Don't worry. Now, most of these churches or cathedrals are still in use. Is this one being used? And did you have to work your visit around any masses? We didn't have to work our visit around any masses or anything like that. But we have been in churches where there is a mass happening. Either we've attended on purpose because my husband did grow up half Catholic, half Protestant. So he likes going to the services. We've actually walked in when there were things like baptisms and stuff happening. You just, I mean, these churches are massive, and there's usually these little alcoves where some of those smaller ceremonies will be happening. And as long as you're going in, you always take your headgear off. I try to make sure that my shoulders are covered and I'm wearing appropriate clothes, not, you know, skinny shorts or something like that, which I wouldn't wear in normal life anyway. (laughs) But I'm trying to be respectful, and then coming in and out is usually not a problem at all. They'll make it very evident if you shouldn't be going in. Always good to be respectful when Mm -hmm. visiting any type of religious venue. So then from there, you went to Mont Saint-Michel, which is a tidal island in Normandy, the Normandy region of France. It's Mm -hmm. special because before there was a massive bridge to the island itself, it was only accessible during low tide. Yeah, it is right out of a fairy story. You know, it's just this island with a medieval town and church just rising up out of these tidal flats. So it's just, it truly is the kind of thing that you would see drawn in a fairy tale story of dragons and and kings and queens. You know, it's just absolutely picturesque. Um, They do now make it very easy to get there. It's one of those where you are going to show up, you drop off your car at a big parking lot and then they have shuttle buses that'll take you up to um, Mont Saint-Michel so they, they they don't have lots of crowds gathering around it itself because that would really destroy what's so special about it to have a bunch of parking lots right next to the actual place. It's gorgeous. Now, were you able to see this island during low tide and high tide? We This was just a, a small part of a day trip day-tripping day for us, so we just arrived when we arrived. Um, the tide was mostly out when we were there, so it looked walkable, but you don't have to walk it because of the road. Okay. It was also raining. There was a lot of rain on this trip, I will say. <laughs> Pack your rain jacket if you're going Pack to your France. Pack your rain jacket, and you know, medieval streets are really cozy, so you know, watch out for your eyeballs from other people's umbrellas and stuff, too. <laughs> now, aside from the monastery, Is there anything else on the island worth visiting? They have a whole series of small museums on the island, and we ended up, kind of not on purpose, but we ended up visiting a couple of the museums, which is really neat because it ends up kind of winding you in and out of the various buildings on the island, so you feel very embedded in the island by doing that. So I highly recommend, aside from the fact that some of the um, it was some military museums and some history museums, and they were really, really great. But I, what I liked best about it was I was getting to go in and out of places as opposed to just in and out of a couple of shops or in and out of just the chapel. And then, of course, there's lots of little gift shops, lots of little restaurants, just like any of these medieval cities and that are tourist destinations. Now, I don't want to play spoiler, but I noticed as I was looking over your trip here, a ton of 
UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Was that purposely picked or it just happened to be that way? It's definitely not on purpose, but we have noticed that trend ourselves. We are definitely drawn to these things that have this this heritage to them. So, you know, like I said, um, when we were talking about Paris, we always try to do the, the touristy things like the Eiffel Tower because we have fear of missing out. But we want to choose places that are rich in history, that have a story where you just look at them and you go, you feel like you could never see this anywhere else. And I think a lot of the UNESCO heritage sites, it's that uniqueness that really identifies them. Like, for example, in Italy, there's the Trulies, which are those cone-shaped houses made out of stones. Like, you're just not going to see that anywhere else. And so I'm always looking for the those things that you just aren't going to see anywhere else, and they seem to correlate with UNESCO heritage sites. And you can actually find all the UNESCO heritage sites and start checking them off if, you, if you're making a list as you carry on throughout your adventures. <laughs> that would be an amazing bucket list. Not a bad idea. <laughs> now, for someone visiting France, and if they wanted to get out of the city life of Paris, would you say that getting out to Mont Saint-Michel and St. Malo and Cap Frihel is a great way to get out and is a must-see? That depends on how long somebody's going to be in Paris. They, As I recall, I think there were some actual guided tours that'll take you all the way from Paris out to that area, as well as like up to the Normandy beaches, for example, which was another one of the day trips we took in this portion of the, of the trip. So it just depends. Do you have a couple of days available to yourself? Chartres and some of the surrounding, like some of the Champagne tours, those are closer to Paris. So if you don't have as much time doing Chartres and doing some of the Champagne tours right closer in would be a would be more convenient. But I mean, yes, if you've got the time in your itinerary, the north coast of France is amazing. And like I said, you're not going to see something like Mont Saint-Michel anywhere else. It's so special. Saint-Malo, a city that's famous for having its walls, it's beautiful. What are some of the major attractions in this city that you've discovered? So it was another very short stop on a day tripping day. So this was on the same day as uh, Mont Saint-Michel. What we loved about it was it's a really rich merchant city, or it was a really rich merchant city. Um, They were telling us that some people think it was a pirate city because these people were not worried about being attacked. Yes, they had this very fortified wall, and it's a great wall, but all the buildings are taller than the wall. So that tells you they weren't overly worried about having to protect themselves. So, you know, I don't know the history of the place, but based on some of the things we read, some of the things we were told, basically it felt like we were in one of the rich cities in Pirates of the Caribbean. And there were some really cool old ships there, too, that really amplified that feeling. That sounds fantastic. I love, I'm a personal fan of pirates, so... That's... Well, yeah. <laughs> well, at least the fictional kinds. Maybe yeah, not exactly. The <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want you to give us your best explanation of what Cap Free Hell is, because just reading it from my research, I think you'll clearly do a much better job having been there. Sure. Um, It was a really random choice to go. So first of all, what it is, it's a lighthouse. It's a lighthouse out on a point, and there's this really beautiful long walk that you can take along the cliffs right there uh, down to a castle. 
And it wasn't on my radar at all. It's one of the things that our Airbnb host had actually recommended that we go see. Another plug for Airbnb, but you know, you're dealing with a real human and they, they know their neighborhoods and stuff. And so they will frequently tell you about restaurants that are real gems that nobody, you know, that tourists don't know about. And this was one of those things. She's like, you should check this out. And I went, okay. Um, especially because I really need some nature time built into these trips. Too much city time will wear me out. And so she told me about it. And then I read the description and I said, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a perfect thing to fill my needs for walking and getting out in nature. So we drove up and it was just a really very pretty lighthouse. And then we took that long walk. It must have been two or three miles along the cliffs down to this very cool castle. No idea what the name of it was because sadly it closed about 15 minutes before our walk ended. So we have um, pouty face pictures with the castle <laughs> at the distance because we couldn't get in. But yeah, it's just it's one of those gems, right? It's it's not on any tourist list. But if you're in that region and, you know, we went up to Omaha Beach, but that's very somber because it's got that history from the war of that landing and so many people dying. And so that would have given, that gave me some of that same natural serenity, but it's a very heavy kind of a feeling. So I just being out, being with the breeze, having that gorgeous north coast of France and just enjoying it for a day, that was an important part of the itinerary for me. You mentioned that it was a bit rainy, maybe not this day, but how was it near the cliffs? Because you can get a lot of wind. Yeah. Okay. So like, um, there was no rain. It was beautiful, but boy, was it windy. Holding on to my hat was one of the main activities of the walk. <laughs> and I was also wearing a, I, I tend to travel in skirts and I was wearing a big old skirt. And so I was getting a whole lot of Maryland going on too, but it was just <laughs> me and my husband in a lighthouse. So it didn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned that it's a travel day. It's a one day travel day. You're going to these different cities and locations. How long can a person expect to stay at these places? And did you feel that you spent enough time there to really get enough out of it? I do feel that I spent enough time there, especially um, like Cap Frey Hell, I definitely didn't need any more time. I wish I'd been a little earlier, but other than that, it's fine. Um, but I think that it's a little bit like, you know, when we went to Assisi, we stayed in Assisi. And that means that you are going to be there at night when most of the tourists have left. And that's a really, really, really special time to be in any medieval city. So we didn't do that in this case because we were staying in Danan, which is own, which is a medieval city. So we were getting some of that wonderful evening time. But it's, for example, something I didn't get to experience in Mont Saint-Michel, which I'm sure is magical. So you don't need necessarily more time, but you do want to make sure that you get some overnight time in some of these cities because it is a very different kind of experience. But having said that, uh, St. Malo, Cap Frejel, uh, Mont Saint-Michel can all be done as day trips very comfortably and just spend a couple of hours there. And I think you'll really enjoy it and get enough out of it to count it as valuable. Perfect. So you finish up this little day trip and you end up heading off to the Dordogne. Yeah, so we were staying in Danan and I think we did three different day trips from Danan, Danan being our base. And then when we left Danan, we were headed to the Dordogne, but we hit a town called Nantes on the way. Beautiful. In this next segment, Erin and James will speak to Rebecca about her experience in Nantes at Les Machines. When you arrived in Nantes, you ended up going to 
Les Machines de Liu, and you describe it as steampunk, but I'm going to need a little bit more than that. What was this and what made it steampunk? All right. So the only reason we went to Nantes, which is a wonderful city in its own right, but I don't know anything about it except for this one thing, because the whole reason we went was to see this exhibition. And I found out about this exhibition from some random Instagram post where this woman had this huge poster in her living room. And I'm like, I love that poster. Where did you get it? Because big art is hard to find. And she's like, oh, I got it in Nantes at the Machine de, de, de Lille. And she's like, you should totally check it out. So I checked it out. This is long before we went on this trip. And it is hard to describe. They are these mechanized creatures. There is, for example, this giant spider. There's a giant sloth. There's a, there's a caterpillar. They're building these herons. And I think they have plans for a dragon. And these are massive. Like the spider is like, the, say, the size of a VW bug. And the, the heron has, has like, I don't know, a 12 foot wingspan or bigger. It's just, these are massive. They're meant, many of them are meant to be ridden, right? So you could actually ride this spider and it's all, I mean, just think of Sherlock Holmesy kind of steampunk stuff. It's all gears and pistons and it's so cool, you guys. And they, what they're trying to do, they're trying to build this kind of eco park. They're trying to build this massive, massive tree structure. And these cranes are supposed to circle around it that you can ride on. And then there's going to be these spiders that are crawling over it that you can ride on. It's going to be epic if they get to actually uh, realize this dream. And it's going to take decades to get there. Um, but right now, it's basically a giant workshop. And you get to see these prototypes and creatures and learn what they're trying to build. And then there is the elephant. And this elephant is this two-story elephant made out of wood and leather. Like the ears are all leather. They're so cool. You can get inside of the elephant and it walks around on its gears and pistons. There's a little operator who sits in the front right leg. And there's something in there that scrapes the metal together. It makes an elephant sound, which sounds remarkably like an elephant. And they also have a steam generator and it can spray people with its trunk all while you're riding around in it. So much fun. So we got to ride that. We got to see the workshop. And it was just one of those moments where you're just going, does this really exist? It's so cool. I have to tell you, I googled this immediately when I was looking at it and my mind was blown. It is truly one of a kind, for sure. It is. And it's just in the inception phase right now. Imagine visiting Disney when it was still in conception, when they're just building Dumbo for the Dumbo ride, you know? That's where Nanta's at right now. So I'm super excited to see it realized, but how fun to be on the forefront of seeing this idea when it's hatching. Yeah, that's a great comparison there. It's sort of that engineering when you don't have millions upon millions of dollars that Disney does right. now to make new rides. You know, it's the initial stages of just tinkering around with what you have and, and you make it into something. And if you're not going to travel there right now because of COVID, you can't travel there. Our listeners should absolutely go check it out on uh, YouTube and then go check it out themselves when they get to travel to France someday. Yep. Just seeing the pictures will blow your mind. Yeah, absolutely. So how long did you end up spending at this site? I'd say we were probably there about three hours total. It was literally okay. a drive through on our way down to um, the Dordogne area. 
Okay. And did you need any more time than that? Or was that like the perfect amount? Not for that exhibit. That was plenty of time for that exhibit. Um, now, remember, we are off season. On season, they also have this two or three story carousel, beautiful carousel. So if we were on season, we might have felt like we wanted a little bit more time. But at least when we went in mid-October, that was plenty of time. Okay. And the next time you go to France and you happen to be in the Dordogne region, you probably, would you give Nantes another visit? I would have to have a reason for doing so because I'm not really a big city girl. I kind of feel like I got what I would have needed from Nantes. And honestly, if I'm going down to the Dordogne region, I'm not going to want to leave. I want to be buried there. It's So really the major draw for you at least is this Les Machines. And if you go back, that would be your major draw just to see the progression that it's made. Yeah, because that's a lot like visiting, um, what is it, the, the, the Familia Sagrada, that unfinished church in um, Barcelona. You know, part of the fun is just being part of the, the growth of it, right? Seeing seeing what's happened since last time you were there. But um, I, and I don't want to say that there's nothing else that I want to see in Nantes. There's just nothing else that I'm aware of. So I can't okay. speak to it. <laughs> that, there you go. In this next segment, Rebecca will tell us about how she was able to connect with nature on her favorite part of this trip to France. So your next trip is something that you have been looking ex- like so forward to. And I, you're, you just are expressing so much excitement right now. I'm, I'm wagging like a puppy right now. Tell us exactly what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So I already said it's important to me to have nature time on these trips. So this was definitely a stop for me. And I'm pretty sure I'd seen it on Rick Steves. He was talking about how you can go canoeing on the Dordogne River. And I went, yes, please. And so I, we looked up um, different operators and found one. We have we have a travel agent that will help us, too, with some of our planning. So she helps us vet some of these things when I'm like, I don't know. And I don't have time to figure it out. So we found one that looked really good. They were responsive. We went ahead and booked it. But we knew that it was weather dependent. So even though this was pretty much the one thing that I really cared about doing on this trip, I didn't know if I was going to get to do it. So the whole time I'm watching the weather and everything. So before we get to the canoe trip, though, we drive from Nantes down to the Dordogne and we are staying in an Airbnb. It was the attic level of this house in a tiny village called Benac and Cazenac. And what's funny is the different regions of France have a very, very, very different history. So when you think of French France or France and French, that's like usually Parisian French. Um, we were going to the very south of France and also to the very northeast corner of France. Northeast corner of France is very German. And the south, I actually don't know the history of the languages down there. But when we were telling people where we were going, even the French people didn't know how to pronounce these places. So that makes me feel better. (laughs) So we drove down to this tiny little medieval city. There's a whole string of them along the Dordogne River. I chose it because... I chose the Airbnb that I wanted out of the selection of awesome little tiny medieval towns that I could have chosen. And when you look out the attic window, you have this view down the Dordogne River and the sunlight is just reflecting off of this river, creating this unreal scene. Like you just you look at it and you go, that's clearly not real. It's too pretty to be real. Um, and then we would watch the sunrises and the sunsets all over this river and the the colors were just mind-blowing so that was we get there it's everything i hope and the weather is good sunny it's about 70 maybe 75 and we go to the canoe vendor 
and we have our reservation and he asks us uh, how long we want to go for. And we're like, we don't know, like how long does it take to canoe down a river? So we just kind of arbitrarily chose the middle amount of time. And then they just set you free. Like they, they plop you in a canoe. It's just the two of us in a canoe with a bucket with a lid so you can put your stuff in the bucket. And then you just start paddling down this river and you've been told kind of how many bridges, like what your destination is for the pickup point. And we passed the leg we chose. I think we passed maybe five different little medieval villages along the river. We could pull out as we were canoeing and go visit you know, the, the local castle or have lunch and get back in our canoe. Like, there's no worries. I don't know. It's just, we weren't worried about our stuff or, or we, we took our expensive, like our passports that I had on us at all times. Those stayed on us. But like, you could leave your lunch in the canoe and nobody's going to take your canoe. Let's put it that way. And we had a bottle of wine with us. So we were just drinking wine on this river and it's a very quiet river. It's not like water rafting. We passed a couple other people who were doing it in high season. I, I suspect there are a lot of people on the river at one time. We only saw three other canoes. And it was just utterly serene, utterly rom-com level perfect. And the only moment of stress was when we realized we were still a bridge away from where we needed to be. And we only had like an hour to paddle there. And based on our rowing to that point, we were like, oh, no. So we started rowing like mad people. To make sure we didn't miss our cutoff point. The people were super relaxed. I think they actually would have been there even if we were late, but we didn't know and we don't speak French, so we didn't want to risk it. So when a part of your trip is dependent upon weather Hmm. and it's such a high priority on your list, that can be a stressful thing leading up to your trip. Do you remember how far in advance you started like checking the weather for that like day or week or whatever part of the trip? Oh, like when I booked it three months earlier, I was like, what's the weather usually like? Yeah, I looked at it quite a bit. But in reality, nobody can actually predict the actual weather. I'd say about a week. You know, whenever the 10-day radar comes out, that's when I would have started paying attention. Okay, yeah. It adds a bit of stress, but if you get to do it, it's fantastic. If you don't, you make plans to go again, so you can. Exactly. And I mean, it's not like checking the weather does any good. If somebody has right. the willpower to not do it, more power to them, but uh, I, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how fit would you say you had to be in order to perform this canoeing for X amount of miles? Not fit at all. Um because, I mean, basically the paddling is so that you can go faster than the river because, you know, you could have just let the river take you the whole time. And for much of our trip, we did because we were literally just sitting in the canoe drinking wine and to steer so that you don't run into the banks. It's so gentle. It's so easy. It's for anybody. Just make sure that you do bring sun protection because if the sun is out, you are surrounded by water and it's all reflecting down and up on you. So how long did you end up having out on the water? Five or six hours. Okay. Yeah, and we now, could have easily kept going. It was so lovely. Now, they had asked you how far you wanted to go. So I guess, how do they sort of clock that? Do you know? Like, Because you said you could stop and, and get off. And if you stayed in the town for a long time, you really didn't go that far. Then maybe if you got up to the first town or whatever. Yeah, cool. I, I mean, I have no idea what would have happened if we hadn't made our intended timeline. This particular canoe outfit will... They have whole legs that can take a whole week. So you could actually get in a canoe for a, do a portion of the river and then you go back to your lodgings and then they'll pick you up and drop you off again, do the next portion of the river. So there's all kinds of um, 
different levels that you could do it at. But I really did feel like I was kind of guessing when we picked up the amount of time we needed. I we figured we did we wanted as much time as we could, but we didn't know if we'd get tired of it, so we didn't want to take the longest one. It was our first time doing it, so we just went with the Goldilocks, the one right in the middle. And so I did consider doing two and three day legs, and I I really liked the idea of it, but because I was worried about the weather being in mid October. And because I didn't really know if we were going to like it, you know, it's always a gamble. I decided to limit it to one day so that I was mitigating my risk. And then within the one day, they gave us an op- option of what time to be picked up at the checkpoint. And that's when we were making that Goldilocks choice. Excellent. So just so our listeners are aware, it does range anywhere from nine kilometers, which is about five and a half miles or so to the multiple day one, which is about 120 kilometers, which is 75 miles. So (laughs) there are some differences there. It's uh, as little as two hours to as many as, yeah, like you said, a week. So, yeah. And the physical exertion isn't going to really change. It's still a gentle river, but sitting for that long, being exposed to the elements, obviously that's all going to take a different kind of a toll. Yeah, absolutely. So this sounds like it worked out as well as it could for you. I'm very happy for you that you got to do all of that. Thank you. And it went well. <laughs> so would you have said this is that was the highlight of your trip? Going into it, it was the high. It was the plan yeah. highlight. Did it work out that way? Absolutely. It is one of our top five days in France. There were days that I think equaled it, but nothing surpassed it. It was a perfect day. Excellent. In this next segment, Rebecca tells us about two different caves she was able to explore in France. After this, your next event was to tour the Lascaux, which are prehistoric cave cave paintings. Mm -hmm. And this is another UNESCO World Heritage Site. So how was this tour? So this was part of just a, a day tripping, right? So we, we were, we try when we, we get an Airbnb, we try and stay settled in one place for at least three nights. So our, our locate, our home base is in Benake Kazanak. And then we just wanted to explore. So we just got out. Um, you know, we started just trip advisoring and stuff going like what's in the area. We didn't have anything planned for the area except for the canoeing. So obviously things like UNESCO heritage sites are going to come up and we decided well, we're not going to get a lot of opportunities to see, I think, what are they, are 14,000-year-old cave paintings? We should go do that. Um, it turns out that there are, there's been four iterations of the caves. There's the actual caves, which, fun fact, were, dis- were totally lost, and then were discovered by, a, I think, a little boy playing with his dog, and the ball fell in the hole that is the cave or something like that. Super fun. Oh, come on. That's a story. <laughs> I don't know, right? Um, I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, and so, you know, they find these caves. They're super cool. But of course, because humans, too many people start going through and they did start degrading the caves. So they have been through um, three different iterations of cave museums now. And each one is getting better because, of course, technology improves and we, and we can make it more and more real. So you are not allowed in the caves. We did not go in the original caves. But Lascaux 4, the current museum, is phenomenal. They have done such an amazing job of recreating portions of the cave and taking you into the tour. Just You really feel like you've experienced the cave, even though you didn't. 
which is good because it preserves the cave. So highly recommended, really, really neat, especially if anybody's into anthropology, history. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, I prefer geology more than anthropology. So it's not one of my super highlights, but it's awesome. It seems like it's at least a little bit of a decent blend of getting you some of the nature side of it, although it sounds like it's man-made. It is. The, the, the exhibits you are going to see are all man-made replicas. But like I said, you don't, even though you know it, when you're going through the tour of the replicated cave, you feel like you're in the original. It's phenomenal, the work they've done. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, very cool. So was there a tour guide on this part of the yeah, trip? Okay. Absolutely. So you're up front. You're asking your questions. <laughs> yes, <Did> I am. <laughs> did you sort of inquire as to how they go about preserving the actual ones, if they are still trying to do that or if they're just letting them be on their own? You know, I know they must have covered it. I mean, the main thing about preserving many things is just to leave them alone. Right. I don't remember if they're doing any particular um, climate control or anything like that to help the planet do its own job. <laughs> Okay, cool. All right, so anything else about these that was noteworthy that you'd like to point out? You know, I'm I'm sitting here kind of on tenterhooks because there's a, there's another adventure that we took the that either the same day or the next day to a cave cave. So, you know, like I said, I'm more geology than anthropology, so I'm that's more me. So I don't mean to be dismissive of the Lascaux caves because they're amazing, but for us, we were like, okay, we've done that. Like, we can check that off. That's, that is a little bit how it felt. So it depends okay. on what your interests are. Okay. Um, and the amount of time we had there, I think we spent about two, maybe three hours there, was plenty. Excellent. Good to know that. So then let's get right into it. The Goof de Pedirac. Yeah. Uh, this was an underground cave that you were on a boat for. Yeah. All right. Tell us more about this. Okay, so we in the Dordogne area, we actually took some turns planning these random trips because we needed to do some research and find them. So this was all me. I have a geology degree. I love all things planet and rock. I mean, come on, it's so amazing. So when I found out that there was a cave tour in the area, I'm like, I'm in. And this is one of those ones that it's just a, it's a giant hole in the earth, like massive. And um, there's an underground river as part of it. So it's not like on the coast or anything. It's in the middle of the ground. Um, but what happens is you descend these stairs, lots and lots and lots of stairs. And then you're and of course, anybody who's been in the cave knows it gets very, very chilly. It doesn't matter how warm it is outside or if it's really cold outside, it'll feel warm. It's, it maintains a certain about 65 degree temperature usually. So you go down and then in this particular one, you take a little bit of a walk and then you come to the boats where the river is. And there's a there's there's just the kind of like canoes and there's tour guides. You have like a it's like being in Venice. You'll have your gondolier person. Uh, there were no motors. So it was very quiet and there, it's lit. The caves are lit. So it, in addition to seeing beautiful cave formations and all of the dripping limestone formations, um, you're on a river under the earth and then they take a picture of you which you then buy afterwards and it's totally worth it because you're never going to be there again um it was awesome it's just a cave 
The caves are awesome. You're making yeah. you're making James so happy right now because he's a science teacher and this is what he does. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely love it. So now what sort of lights or is there a bunch of uh, lights that they put in in there and that's Yeah, I don't know if anyone's been to the like the Mammoth Caves in Kentucky for example. They they tend to have the lights that'll light up the formations. They tend to use different colors. So it's not exactly the most natural light, but you're in a cave. There is no natural light. So I guess you can do whatever you want. <laughs> but the thing that was neat about this cave in addition to the river part was there was a lot of elevation gain. I mean, the, the caverns were very, very big. There's a lot of stairs up and down. It's a very impressive little complex with really beautiful, beautiful formations. Fantastic. Did you all have flashlights available or were there lights throughout the entire place? Yeah, I don't remember carrying anything with us or feeling like we needed to. So it was well lit the whole way. There's something where they gave you like a hard hat with like a light on it or any kind of safety measures with anything like that? Not that I recall, but that doesn't mean they didn't. Okay. But I was like a kid in a candy store. You can always so I'm go back like, to the picture and see. I know, I might need to do that. <laughs> but I don't think so. I, I don't, I, I feel like I would remember that because I am so visual and I looked at the pictures recently and I think I was just wearing my hat, my own hat. I feel like this is a classic cave thing to do did they take you to any point where it was just pitch black and they wanted you to just really take in how dark it was you know i've experienced that and i love it and i don't remember doing that on this particular trip but i've been in enough caves at this point that they do start to blend a little bit so same thing i'm like oh did they i don't know or was that that other cave um but i loved the when you're on the river it's a very different um, audio experience because you have the sound of the gentle paddling and then the echoes are just a little bit different than if they're just echoing off of rocks. So I don't think they did. I, I'm trying to remember, but I, I think they do a special tour at night where all the lights are off. I think that's true. And I think I wanted to do it, but it wasn't available when we were there. And if it is true, um, I need to go back. In the final segment of today's episode, Rebecca will tell us about the part of her trip that her husband planned to a castle with some exquisite gardens. Okay, so next on your list was the Chateau de Hautfort, and this was a castle. You want to tell us a little bit more about this castle? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, so first, funny fun fact, which is that I did most of the planning for this particular trip, and... As we talked a little bit in the last podcast, I think we did, about how that can be really stressful because you don't know if other people are going to like what you're planning. And so about a couple days into our Dordogne trip, which is about two or almost three weeks into our French trip, I just wore out. I fell apart. I started crying. I'm like, I just need you to plan something. So my beloved husband picked up the ball, totally ran with it, researched cool things in the area, and he found this castle. And it's wonderful. Um, most of the castles that we visited or have visited just in general on our trips are ruins, right? And they're wonderful. Oh gosh, I have some favorites in Scotland, especially. But this one was, it's a, it's a younger castle. I, I think it might have been restored from an older castle, but it's, it's all nice. What am I trying to say? Like it's very restored. So you really got a sense of like what 
being in the space, what living in the space might feel like. Um, and the gardens are incredible. They have this whole expansive manicured garden, the knot gardens where all of the bushes form shapes and stuff. Massive amount of that there. It's absolutely stunning and really cool underground, you know, cellar areas and dungeons. But they have, you know, you can and you can wander through the whole castle. So you're seeing the chambers and the kitchens and the dungeons and the gardens. And um, again, because we were off season, there were so few people there. So we got these wonderful pictures that nobody's in. It was so great. Yeah, it's a, it's just a breathtaking property. Fantastic. So this is sort of a self-guided. You can kind of walk around the place to yourself. Yes, I know they had tours, but we just grabbed the pamphlet and wandered around on our own, which is awesome. generally our prefer- preferred way of doing things. And then you get to ask your husband all your all the questions instead of the tour guide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this looks like a nice little castle. Checking it out on Google and the gardens look beautiful. So it's, it looks like a, a great experience. Yeah. And the property itself. So there's the gardens, there's the castle, and then there's a bunch of property as well. And we wandered that, too, just. Really gorgeous trees. There were these purple flowers that were growing in the shade. Like it was this crazy little shock of purple flowers with, it didn't seem like the sunlight could get to. So again, it felt like a fairyland. Like there must be magic here because these flowers don't belong where they are. You know, just really great moments like that at this one castle. And then of course, all held up by the fact that I didn't have to find it. So it was just a surprise to me. It was a delight. Awesome. So how long did you spend at the castle? We wandered those grounds quite a lot. I'm guessing we were probably there about four hours. Okay. And it's because, you know, not the castle itself, but all the gardens and all the grounds mm-hmm. to wander as well. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. We'll be back with the final leg of Rebecca's trip to France next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IBBpod for updates and pictures from our guests. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast.